is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. The investigations into former President Trump just got a lot more intriguing. Attorney General Merrick Garland naming Jack Smith as a special counsel to oversee the Justice Department's investigations into Trump. Mr. Trump has already lashed out at that, says it's all unfair. We go in depth into what this means for the future of the investigations and Mr. Trump's new presidential run. We'll take you to Buffalo, New York, where a possibly historic snowstorm is hitting. And the Justice Department reportedly looking into Ticketmaster's parent company. This against the backdrop of that Taylor Swift ticket mess. So you got the Buffalo snow mess. You got the ticket mess involving Taylor Swift. Twitter might have a mess of its own as well. More workers continue to leave the company. Also, more women are choosing to give birth at home. The World Cup, you know, the big soccer event, might not be as fun for fans who are there. You might be better off, if you like drinking beer, you might be better off staying at home. We'll tell you more about that. And also, looking on the bright side of things all the time, turns out it could be toxic. Tell it to Mary. Tell it to Mary Poppins. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We'll explain. Uh, we start with the appointment of the special counsel in the Donald Trump investigations. Gregory Wallens is a former federal prosecutor in the Carter and Reagan administrations where he was a member of the Scam prosecution. That was the team that convicted a U.S. senator and six representatives of bribery. We also have with us defense attorney and legal analyst. Rachel, uh, Rachel, Rachel, <laughs> there we go, Rachel. <laughs> hello, Rachel, and hello, Gregory. Thanks for both, uh, both of you for being with us. Gregory, uh, let me start with you because there are two things that are going on here, of course. There's the legal implications of appointing the special prosecutor or special counsel, and there are also, I, sus- I suspect, the political ones uh, as well. So I'm going to start off with the political ones since you were part of a team that prosecuted uh, a senator and, as I mentioned, representatives of the House of Representatives. So you were involved in that sort of intersection of uh, the law and politics. Uh, by appointing the special counsel, what does this do, if anything, to the political argument that Mr. Trump is already starting to make that this is all part of the witch hunt? It's all because it's the Biden administration going after him. Well, first, thank you for having me on. Uh, I think it's going to give him more ammunition to make that argument. And in fact, I saw he was quoted today as saying, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. The question is, how much is that going to add to his existing you know, set of uh, bullets to make that argument in his announcement that he was running for president? Again, he referred to himself as a victim. I think this is going to be big, but not for more than a few weeks. Then these investigations tend to kind of go underground, and he'll still be beating this victimhood drum. But I'm not certain it's going to add to what we already know. The guy is always under investigation. What's new? Yeah, well, I couldn't help but take a notice when when Charles was introducing you both. You know, he said investigations plural, more than just one. Uh, The uh, special prosecutor is a gentleman named Jack Smith. Uh, Rachel, to you, what will be Jack Smith's role as special prosecutor, and what type of authority will he have? 
So Jack Smith will take over for the current attorney general that is investigating Trump. And he still reports to Merrick Garland. That is still his boss. But the special counsel has a lot of independent and that it is now his investigation. He is in charge of it. He will run with the facts that have already been developed. But basically all the FBI agents and the local uh, U.S. attorneys and assistant U.S. attorneys, they have a new boss. So they now report to him um, as it relates to two investigations. One is the unlawful interference with the transfer of power uh, for 2020. And that does not include, and they were specific to not include basically the general rioters and the acts that had to do with the riot, but more the um what Trump would be investigated for, which is whether he was misleading the public um, and uh, and obstructing that transfer of power. And then the second investigation has to do with all of those Mar-a-Lago documents and the classified documents and presidential documents and whether he has obstructed that investigation as well. So there's really two two investigations now that Jack Smith is pretty fully in charge of. Gregory, back to you, because I'm curious in the timing of this and and why it wasn't done perhaps earlier, because I would imagine that uh, a new person comes on the team, in this case, uh, Mr. Smith, he's going to have to get up to speed. It's going to take a certain amount of time to do that. Isn't this only going to delay things so that if it gets to the point where the feeling is there is enough evidence to bring an indictment or indictments against Mr. Trump, isn't it going to only bring it closer and closer to the next presidential election and fueling because of that the Trump argument that this is all political? Well, there is going to be some delay while he staffs up, gets familiar, uh, Jack Smith gets familiar with the facts and so on. Although prosecutors like him can move quickly on their feet once they're set in motion. But I think that Merrick Garland made a very interesting point, very revealing point, at his press conference where he said that extraordinary circumstances made it in the public interest to appoint uh, Smith to handle the case as a special counsel because of Trump's announcement that he would be a candidate for president and Biden's statement of a general intention to run in 2024. He clearly felt that at that point, and this is a key commitment of Merrick Garland's, that the best way to shield the Department of Justice from claims of uh, politicization, which Trump is making, is to take it away initially, not in the final decision-making, but at least have a more neutral-appearing career prosecutor handled the case yes but 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 then but but let me interrupt because it goes back then to what we were talking about before which was at the end of the day it's not going to be this so-called independent counsel who was going to make a decision right it's going to go right back into the lap of the attorney general so don't you come full circle at that point yeah you could argue that all he's done is kick the can down the road and and here's the thing this could result if the decision is made to prosecute and Garland by Jack Smith and Garland signs off on that, and that occurs even sometime next year, well before the 2024 election, that's going to be huge. We're going to be in a whole new 
territory. It's going to be convulsive. No one can really predict how it will play out. And I think at the end of the day, he's still going to be facing the politicization claims uh, that he's trying to at least mitigate by appointing uh, a special counsel. Rachel, we're a little tight on time at this point, but let me just finish with this. Does this in any way help make the investigation appear to be less partisan, not as Donald Trump says, a political witch hunt? I think that is what the intent was to do here, is that it is a less partisan. It is He is not an appointed presidential U.S. attorney. Um, and the other important thing here is that he can only be fired for good cause. So actually, if someone else takes uh, wins the presidency and this investigation is still ongoing, theoretically, without good cause, this special counsel and this investigation could still be going. So in other words, if, if Mr. Trump were to win, hypothetically, another uh, White House uh, run, he would find it very difficult to get rid of Mr. Smith. Is that right? That's right. Okay. okay. Rachel, thank you again. That's Rachel Fizé, legal analyst, also joining us, uh, Gregory Wallens, former federal prosecutor. Right now, though, uh, much of western and northern New York getting hit with what could end up being a historic snowstorm. Nearly two feet of snow fallen in some areas already with a lot more, maybe 60 plus inches more on the way. Recent images of the Buffalo Bills Stadium show it blanketed with snow. With us is Joanne Song McLaughlin. She's a labor economist at the University at Buffalo, and she's waiting the storm out at home with her husband, dog, and cat. It sounds very cozy, Joanne, but it also sounds like it could be very cold and, if you go outside, miserable experience. That's right. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> I We are fine because we live in a suburb called Amherst, New York. So we are like 10 miles north of downtown Buffalo. Um, so overnight, we only got a few inches of snow. And that's what's really interesting about this um, lake effect snow. Um, just to give you an idea. So from downtown, um, uh, about 10 miles south of downtown, there's uh, Buffalo Bill Stadium. And overnight, they got over three feet of snow, where we got only a few inches of snow. That's the lake effect snow. It's very vocalized. Yeah, because of that snow, that lake effect snow, which really hits Buffalo uh, hard, the Bills game against Cleveland's now being moved to Detroit, uh, a neutral site, because there's just going to be too too much snow. Uh, tell me, Joanne, were you around, what was it, back in 2014, the last time Buffalo really got socked in with a major storm? Yes, um, I came to Buffalo because I was hired um, in 2014. Oh, uh, so that was August. I grew up in California, right? So I'm I'm all <laughs> used to sunny, uh, you know, warm temperature. Um, because of my job, uh, my family moved to Buffalo in August and November of 2014. Uh, we had, I think. Well, we like my apartment was not affected, but the area we got like six feet of snow. Over 24 hours. That was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I understand that as a preemptive step, they're they're not allowing people to drive on certain roadways uh, be, because of the dangers. Uh, do you have all the supplies you need? Are you uh, ready? Are you hunkered down? So, um, so yesterday around six o'clock, I went to grocery store <laughs> uh, and I got all the stuff, all the food that I need over the weekend. Um, so we are pretty much ready. Um, 
I, we knew that um, this, this warning was sent out to, um, to the entire area a few days before, so we weren't ready. We knew that uh, this was coming. Um, so, uh, my school, the University at Buffalo, um, uh, canceled class um, last night, so we, we knew we didn't have to go in. All the activities are closed. Um, so all my colleagues are ready, working from home. You know, I'm I'm curious because I once spent a, a year one day in Buffalo <laughs> during a snow <laughs> during a snowstorm. Old joke, old. Yeah, joke. <laughs> and the snow is coming down. Uh, so you guys are kind of used to having a lot of snow. Uh, is this one really kind of shaking people up a little bit more? Are they sort of on edge because this is supposed to be historic? Uh, honestly, I don't think so. No, really, Buffalonians just... are no, not really. Buffalonians are so good at dealing with snow; it's it's just normal. They're so good at cleaning um, snow; um, it's it's normal. But I, I but am I right that your your dog likes the snow? Oh, my my dog Zoe, she loves it. <laughs> so she runs around. She thinks she could eat all the snow that's on the ground. Okay. Well, uh, try and enjoy it. Try and, you know, sit back, look out your picture window, enjoy the snow coming down because it can be a beautiful sight. Uh, stay safe. And, and Joanne, we thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to speak with us. We've been talking with Joanne Song McGoughlin. Uh, she's a labor economist at the University of Buffalo. She's from right here in Southern California, but she's hunkered down with her husband, dog, and her cat as the snow hits Buffalo, New York. Yeah, it, it, it can be really beautiful until you realize your car is buried under 10 feet of snow. Hey. So I'm I'm Canadian, so I (laughs) don't have to tell me coming up the pandemic changing how some women are giving birth and the power of positive thinking might not be so powerful. Okay, right now, though, the New York Times is reporting the Justice Department is opening an antitrust investigation. Actually, it has opened one into the parent company of Ticketmaster. This comes amongst all the chaos this week over Taylor Swift tickets. With us now to discuss this is William Kavasik. He's a George Washington University Law School professor, former Federal Trade Commission chair, co-editor of the Journal of Antitrust Enforcement. William, thank you for joining us today. First of all, what kind of legal trouble could Ticketmaster, or at least its parent company, which I guess is Live Nation, what kind of legal trouble could they be facing? Ticketmaster is uh, subject to a consent decree with the Department of Justice that was first entered in 2010, upgraded in 2019, that requires the company to abide by a number of restrictions to ensure that concert uh, promoters and concert venues are able to have a wide choice of options in deciding whom to book for concerts and who to put on. What they're looking at now in this inquiry is to see whether Ticketmaster is abided by those obligations. And the latest set of developments has drawn a lot of attention to how Ticketmaster operates its system. There's an enormous amount of pressure coming from elected officials to focus on this. So the company probably faces a very exacting inquiry about whether it's fulfilled the promises it's made to the government before. Yeah, and the the New York Times is uh, reporting uh, that this investigation uh, was actually, of course, opened before this mess that happened in, over the past couple of days with Taylor Swift. But that being said, can you explain to our listeners how what did happen with the uh, Taylor Swift tickets might be an example of of some of the problems of Ticketmaster being, in in effect, a monopoly. 
the the in many ways the policymaking process responds to big smash ups uh, or or disasters, and this is a good example of it. Uh, there's been a lot of concern going back to the merger itself over 10 years ago uh, that the company exercises a strong degree of market power in this segment. And as a consequence, the Justice Department has been paying a lot of attention to this sector for a long period of time. They had an outstanding inquiry going uh, as it was. And in this instance, the fact of this very visible uh, apparent lapse in the operation of the system is likely to give exists, uh, additional impetus to the inquiry that they have going on already. How long will a process like this, an investigation like this one, last? Could we be seeing changes in this sector sooner than later, or is this going to be protracted? The investigation will be protracted. This will take many months. But the fact that it's going on has had a tendency in the past to cause the firm to behave differently. It's what one commentator calls the policeman at the elbow phenomenon, knowing that when you've got someone staring at you so closely in this instance, you tend to take steps to change your own behavior well before the investigation's over. What are the possible outcomes of this kind of investigation, do you think? The boldest uh, possibility is that the Justice Department would try to unwind the merger that put this all together over 10 years ago uh, to see seek a structural uh, realignment in the industry that uh, that undoes the merger itself. Short of that, you could see efforts to impose stronger requirements that prohibit discrimination in the operation of the platform. But the biggest possibility is that the Justice Department would seek to undo the merger itself. You made a very interesting comment just a moment ago that Live Nation, Ticketmaster's parent company, might make changes on its own during the investigation. Is that a strong possibility? Uh, I think it is. I think that this reflects a lot of experience we've had with these kinds of inquiries going back over many decades. And that is the fact that you have exacting scrutiny taking place induces companies to try to solve the, the problems that gave rise to the crisis itself to take their own steps to build in safeguards that ensure that there won't be repeats of the circumstance we have now. That kind of scrutiny tends to cause companies to change their behavior. All right. William, thank you for your time today. Again, we've been speaking with William Kavasek. He is a former Federal Trade Commission chair. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Felt. Well, Twitter is dealing with yet another apparent exodus of workers. Literally hundreds, hundreds reportedly have left, many of them rejecting the company's new owner, Elon Musk's terms for staying with Twitter. Yeah, multiple news reports say that Musk gave them an ultimatum to work in what he wrote is an extremely hardcore fashion at the company, or leave. With us is Melissa Engel, who's a former Twitter senior data scientist. She was just recently let go. Melissa, thanks for being with us. Uh, how long ago were you, I, and I guess, uh, are we being euphemistic when we say let go? You were fired, right? That's right. I was fired on a Saturday, uh, this past Saturday, November 12th. How long were you there for? Just over a year. I started in September 2021. Describe the atmosphere at Twitter. Yeah, in the, in the recent weeks, it's been extremely chaotic with Honestly, some of the lowest morale I've ever seen. I've worked in the tech industry here in the Bay Area for my entire career, and I, I've never quite seen anything quite so quite chaotic, quite so disorganized, with morale quite so low. With the with so many, and like as as we mentioned, hundreds of people leaving the company now, uh -huh. can it survive? 
You know, I, I have serious doubts. I worked in content moderation, which means I tried to keep the platform healthy. And I can tell you personally that the, the site cannot run with the amount of content moderation staff currently there. Were you surprised when Musk took over uh, on his attitude toward the company? Or did you have great expectations when he came on board and bought it that perhaps things would actually be better? We were always hopeful, but unfortunately, he'd made a number of disparaging statements about content moderation. Specifically, he wanted it to be a full free speech platform. And and we've really learned hard lessons over the years. That's just not possible. You need content moderation to keep the platform healthy. You know what he's done with Tesla, um, with SpaceX, he's done amazing things. And so there's a... It's kind of strange, almost a strange dichotomy here in that uh, people look at what he's doing now with Twitter and say, this is strange, uh, that he's he's acting crazy. Then there's others who will say, maybe he's crazy like a fox. Maybe yeah. some things have to be done there. What's yeah. your take on something like that? Absolutely. And I, I, I think um, it's, there, it's very possible that there's some amount of reorganization that was inevitable to make Twitter healthy. It's possible that there was some bloat. Um, I can just say that with the massive departures, the site engineers, the content moderators, this platform simply doesn't have enough people um, to survive. We're not we are not there yet with the technology that exists on the platform. What should people who use Twitter think about all this and should they continue to use Twitter? Listen, I'm a longtime Twitter uh, user and evangelist. I, I've been on the platform since 2009, and I've seen it evolve. And I'm going to stay on it. I, I Listen, I hope he writes the ship. I'm not a doomer. I think he can still turn things around. Like you said, he's a very bright man. He's had tremendous success. I just think so. he's going to need to change the course that he's currently on. What's next for you? Are you going to stay within this this realm? Absolutely. Um, I was a contractor, so unfortunately, I'm not given any severance. So I'm just spending my days are being filled with uh, looking for more work. And and fortunately, the ex Twitter employees have been extremely helpful and generous with their time and recommending each other to people that we know. Of course, as you know, uh, Melissa, one of the biggest concerns about Twitter, all social media, is uh, the propensity for carrying misinformation, disinformation. Uh, How much should people be concerned, especially now that uh, we're getting sort of warmed up for another presidential run? Uh, How much should people be concerned that there just now aren't enough people at Twitter to try to safeguard against that flood of mis and disinformation? Absolutely. I, very concerned. This is a this was my subject matter where I worked. I, I can say that there is just not enough information. You need both. I worked on machine learning algorithms to protect the platform. And there were also human reviewers who did the bulk of the work. And the human reviewers have almost universally been dismissed. And the ML algorithms, the the staff that's that's sort of keeping them up um, has been devastated as well. I just think it's going to increase in misinformation going forward. Melissa, it sounds like you've got a very good attitude regarding uh, this and regarding your future. We wish you the very best. Again, that's Melissa Engel, former former Twitter senior data scientist, uh, recently let go. You know, we've um, talked a lot about how the pandemic has changed, how we do all kinds of things. Now we're finding out what's changed when it comes to having a baby. New data from the CDC says that more women are giving birth at home 
than before the pandemic. Yeah, the overall numbers of births at home is still small. We're talking less than 2%, but there was a heavy increase from 2019 to 2020 and another major jump from 2020 to 2021. Jennifer Vanderlaan is a professor at uh, the UNLV School of Nursing. She's also a trained midwife and has previously provided continuing education for midwives in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and Central America. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. First of all, maybe what are the advantages or are there advantages to giving birth at home? Well, thank you for letting me share this information with you. The advantages to giving birth at home really are for women who want to give birth in a setting that they find comfortable without any medication to control the pain. Um, It's an option for women who want to maybe um, stay home with their children um, to be part of the birth or who want to have extended family there. And um, it's it's really actually a safe thing for most women who are low risk for delivery complications. Did this upswing in uh, women giving birth at home because or or simultaneous to the uh, onset uh, of the pandemic, was that in part because what? Were women concerned about getting COVID going into a hospital setting and they thought it was just safer at home? Was that part of it? I think that is part of it. Um, it's, we saw the first increases happen in April 2020. So part of what was happening in April 2020 was that hospitals were starting to be overrun with COVID. But the other piece was in order to prevent the spread of COVID, hospitals initially restricted women from bringing somebody with them to provide support during the birth, which meant the husband or their mother or their doula couldn't come with them. And women thought that uh, the restrictions really seemed to only last for a couple of weeks weeks and hospitals let women bring their support person with them again. But we saw the increase throughout 2019 and, I'm sorry, 2020 and 2021. Of course, there were so many restrictions, so many mandates during the the brunt of COVID-19. Many of them have been pulled back now. Is it fair to say, though, that uh, women, their husbands, they're making the decision that, okay, yes, restrictions are being pulled back, but they still have concerns because we're talking about uh, the birth of a child, still concerned about the risk of COVID uh, in the delivery room. I th- I think so. I th- there's not really another explanation for it. We we do know that the increase didn't occur in every state. And so there are some some of the changes that happened, some of this increase really is due to the fact that there were policies in place that allowed women to have access to home birth. Um, there, I think there were 10 states where there wasn't an increase in 2020. Um, and so, so some of it is that it was an option for women. In places where it wasn't an option, women didn't necessarily move into the home. Um, and it really does seem to be due to concerns for COVID. We did have some small increases in home birth um, the last couple of years leading up to 2019, but this was a big jump. Jennifer, I'm curious, have there been any good studies that compare the uh, mortality rate of childbirth at home versus a hospital? There, there's a lot of studies. It's, it's a hard thing to measure um, using birth certificates, um, but there does seem to be a very uh, small increase in neonatal deaths at home. But that isn't, um, again, it's one of those things where it looks like a large percent, but the number is incredibly small. Jennifer, as a, as a professional, as somebody who uh, knows so much about this, best advice for you for a woman their husband, a couple who are listening right now, maybe driving in their car, if they're considering having their child at home. Best advice. 
Best advice is uh, find a midwife who can help you determine if it is a safe and accessible option for you. Midwives are trained in this and can help you make a good decision. Very quickly, how do you find one? Um, an actual easy way to do that is to go online. The American College of Nurse Midwives um, provides access to a list of midwives. Um, most women know how to Google something and find it. You can find practices that have midwives in your area and find some that give that give services either in a birth center or at home can help women give birth outside of a hospital. All right. Jennifer, thank you again. We've been speaking with Jennifer Evangelon. She's a professor at the UNLV School of Nursing. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Felton. Well, the eyes of the world, the sports world, will be on the small Middle Eastern country of Qatar for the next oh, the next month or so. Yes, it's the Men's World Cup. It kicks off this weekend. First matches actually start on Sunday. The United States will take on Wales in its first match Monday. That's in group play. But the big story right now out of the World Cup is what fans won't be doing during the games drinking beer or other <laughs> alcoholic beverages. Libations. Qatar now says no alcohol will be sold inside the stadiums. Kevin Baxter is the L.A. Times soccer writer. He's in Qatar right now covering the World Cup. Kevin, thanks for being with us. So this is uh, uh, apparently come as a blow to uh, Budweiser, right? Uh, Anheuser-Busch, which is a big supporter of the World Cup and was not, as I understand it, part of the agreement. Is that right? That's correct. It, it, and it seems to be a political uh, dispute, not so much between Budweiser, FIFA and Qatar, but ma- mainly between Qatar and the rest of the world, in a sense. Beer sales, originally, they thought beer sales would take place inside the stadium, meaning in the bowl that you could watch the game from your seat and have a beer. That ended kind of quickly and they decided, decided no, no, we'll have beer sales near the stadium adjacent to uh, the spectator area, but you will not be able to have a beer at your seat. Um, that was that whole thing was nixed uh, earlier today. And uh, FIFA announced after under pressure from the Qataris that beer will only be sold, beer and alcoholic beverages will only be sold at FanFest, which are far removed from the stadium. So that means if you're a fan, you need to go to the stadium after the match, you'd leave the stadium, then travel to the FanFest, which is several miles away. Um, it, it just makes it, uh, you know, difficult to have a beer and watch the game. And, and the reason I think I've been talking to a lot of Qataris this week for a story about uh, sort of the culture wars that are going on here with with Westerners coming in and and uh, the Qataris believing that there's not a sufficient um, uh, pain of respect to local tradition and customs. Um, that's kind of been percolating up for a while now in Qatar. And it's, one of the lines of thought is that the the emir, this is a constitutional monarchy, and the emir and the royal family have, um, uh, you know, they have, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They are totally in control of government policy, even though it's a constitutional monarchy. That that the royal family decided that this culture war had gone a little bit too far, and that they needed to show the Qataris that they had their back and that they were on their side in this culture war. Um, in, in alcohol well, is is not outlawed in Qatar, yeah. but it's, it, is, it is very closely monitored. So this is sort of striking a blow for 
for local Qataris yeah. who worried about Westerners coming in and having the run of the country. Kevin, let me let me ask you this. Uh, th- this event is, I mean, we, we look at the Super Bowl as being huge, but this really is the, 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 the biggest sporting event in the world, the, the World Cup. You've got people coming in from all over the world to watch their, their, their country, their team play. What's the reaction among the fans mingling uh, amongst others in Qatar right now? Oh, well, the, you mentioned the biggest event in the world. You know, FIFA now, FIFA is the world governing body for football, and they organize uh, the World Cup. They expect 5 billion people to watch this World Cup at some point uh, over the next month. So it, it is the biggest sporting event in the world. The fans that are here uh, kind of felt like they've been double-crossed a little bit because many of them um, it didn't come here for the beer, clearly, but they, they thought that they would be able to enjoy a beverage while they were here uh, watching the football games. And they bought their tickets and spent, you know, thousands of dollars to come here. It's not a cheap flight. Uh, accommodations are not cheap. Um, so they spent a lot of money to come here under the belief that, that they would be able to, again, have a beer while they're at the games. There's also some thinking that that's one reason the Qataris and FIFA waited this long to make this announcement. If they had done it maybe a month ago, maybe six months ago, if this is what they intended to do, that certainly would have hurt ticket sales. So they waited until it was too late for anyone to change their plans and announced it today, 48 hours before the first game. But of course, Kevin, as you know, I mean, uh, the future, I, I would suspect that Qatar was hoping or is hoping to do more things like this, because I know it's been trying to present to the world a, a face of being a much more modern type country. This has got to be a setback for that. Well, there's a couple of things going on, and you're absolutely right. It is a setback to them. They've had over 600 uh, international sporting events in Qatar since 2010 when they won the right to host this World Cup. And they are angling to get the 2036 Olympics. Um, that's their real goal. They want to have the Olympics come here as well. Um, but they have been widely criticized about their labor practices, the kafala system, which is uh, sort of a legal system of indentured servitude here. Um, you know, many workers died in, in the construction projects in some of these uh, World Cup venues. Um, homosexuality is outlawed here. Um, so the Qataris have come in for a lot of criticism. And I think this beer sale thing really is them lashing back at uh, sort of what, if you want to call it the Western culture, uh, are some of the Western visitors that are coming in here because of that criticism. But I, th- I think you're right. I think it's going to backfire um, rather than looking like, hey, we can handle this. We can deal with with people with divergent viewpoints and have them come in and enjoy being here in Qatar. What they've decided is that, no, it's going to kind of be our way or the highway. And when the International Olympic Committee looks at what FIFA has gone through dealing with Qatar, dealing with the whims, dealing with the, the way they change their minds on a lot of policies. And then, you know, the international criticism over uh, labor rights and those kind of things and, and LGBTQ rights. I don't think the International Olympic Committee is going to want to deal with this yeah. in 2036. Lot, I, I think Qatar has really hurt themselves. A lot of, lot of issues there uh, you just delved into. Kevin, thank you. Enjoy the World Cup. That's Kevin Baxter, L.A. Times soccer writer, joining us uh, from Qatar. You're listening to King and X in Depth along with Charles Feldman. I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm uh, Charles Feldman telling you that uh, you may have heard people say to you, don't worry. Be happy. Be happy. Be happy. Stay happy. positive. Yeah. Look on the bright side. Things could be worse. Uh, well, could all be a bunch of baloney <laughs> <laughs> okay. because none of these may actually make you feel better at the time and can even just make you sort of mad. Oh, hush up about that. <laughs> There's a term for this. It's called toxic 
positivity. And with us to talk more about this is Stephanie Robilio. She's a clinical director at Agape Behavioral Health Care. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. First of all, this sounds so odd. Why can thinking positively or being told by others to think positively be such a problem? Yes. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for having us live here today with you. You know, toxic positivity is something that we're hearing more about and we're seeing it to be a pattern in the world right now. And the reason this can be harmful and unhealthy is because it really reinforces this idea or belief that we're not allowed to be honest about how we're feeling, that we have to live in this state of constant positivity. And let's be real, that's not realistic. And over the course of time, this can do a lot of harm to people on an emotional level. It, does it also then sort of make people feel that they are responsible for whatever dire situation or what they think might be a dire situation they're in when it might be out of their control? Absolutely. It, it, what it tells a person is that I'm not important. What I'm feeling isn't important. There's no space for me to show up authentic right now, because if I do, I could be shamed or I could feel guilt for how I'm feeling. And over the course of time, this really feeds people's on an emotional level. And if they're struggling with something like addiction or mental health, what we know to be true is when we stay quiet, we stay sick. We have to have safe space to really show up and be real about what we're going through. I guess guess it's interesting. I'm just trying to get my head around this. So thinking positively, I mean, I I guess... Maybe the simplest way to put this is, is there simply a balance we have to look for? Yeah. And I think there's a big difference, right? To think positively is an amazing quality to have. That's one thing, but it's entirely different if a person is trying to express their needs or if they're showing up saying, Hey, I'm struggling right now. I'm having a hard time financially, or I just lost a loved one, or I'm going through this thing in a relationship. And then they're shut down. They're told, Hey, get over it quickly. Or you know, just brush your knees off or keep keep your eye on the prize, right? That's very different than being positive. Yeah, I, I like I said, I think earlier in the show, I've never really liked Mary Poppins. I always thought she was a <laughs> goody, two, goody two shoes. Goody two shoes. You know, uh, what should people tell you, though, uh, if let's say you, you come into a setting uh, and you're, for whatever reason, it's a down day, what should somebody say to you, if anything? You know, I really think it comes down to having personal boundaries for yourself. And what that means is knowing who and what is good for you. There's a time and a place for everything. And so if a person identifies they're struggling and let's say they work in a place where that's not invited to show up and be honest about what you're going through, then have the boundary to leave it at the door, so to speak. Right. Because what you do is then you end up protecting yourself from being harmed if somebody's not available to listen to you. Okay, so. I guess I guess I struggled with this one a little bit because I, I've always kind of thought keep a positive attitude no matter what kind of day I might be happening. Having, I, I don't want to take it out on others. I want to try and just keep the attitude positive as best I can. Maybe it's the old fake it till you make it routine. Uh, and I'll also dealing with some friends who've had have had problems, uh, health problems. Don't you know? Don't get your yeah. cortisol levels up. Try and stay positive as best but, you but, can. But I but I think uh, I think uh, Stephanie and correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think you're making a distinction between somebody uh, internally having a positive attitude as opposed to pushing it on somebody else as opposed to being told by another person you should have a positive attitude is that right that's right there's a huge difference there's absolutely nothing wrong with having a positive mindset If, if anything let's all try to aim for that but it's very different if somebody is truly truly struggling 
and they go to a person and they try to open up and they're told, hey, look on the bright side, that can be so harmful. And we have to also remember that the way we handle things is so personal and so individual. For one, it might be really easy to keep a positive mindset despite what's happening in life. For somebody else, it could be really difficult to do that. Okay. Stephanie, thank you. Uh, that's Stephanie Robilio. She's a clinical director at Agape Behavioral Healthcare. So you can be positive if you want. I'm, I'm going to stay positive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm just not going to tell you to be positive. <laughs> That'll do it for In-Depth today. For Charles, I'm and no Chris. more no more Disney movies for no. you. <laughs> just lots of sports this weekend. Yeah. We're back Monday.